Hey, David. Hey, Mark. I'd be curious to know um, what you guys think about how board structures um, tend to reflect product over time. Like how much do, how much does the product mirror the organization as it grows? So maybe the question. <laughs> yeah, we, we can start with that, actually. That's a good question. I'll let um, Ali start with that because I, I think and, and I would extend your question to be not just the product, but the um, well, the product, meaning the actual architecture of the code base. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, so you ship your org chart, as they say, called Conway's Law, right? Also known as Conway's Law. Um, yeah, you, this is there's no doubt about it, right? If you pick up any product, you can pretty much see the org chart in the products. Um, and you can see it also in other things that your organization does as well. Um, the big problem you face is that you might say, well, then let's have like a big organization where everybody can work together and get alignment. We're going to basically eliminate the org boundaries and have big teams. Uh, but then the problem is it's very hard to make progress, you know, because there's N squared people that need to communicate and get on the same page. Uh, on the flip side, you might say, well, I found the solution to this. Let's just move super fast, have super smart teams, those small teams. Amazon calls them, they can just, you know, get alignment around five, six people and they can just run very fast. But then all the things building are inconsistent and it's hard to make all those products work well together. So it's a real difficult problem and it requires you to really understand what you want to build and then build your org chart around what you want to build, which of course is really, really hard. So there's no silver bullet, but it's real. Right. And, it, and I, I just add to that, that, you know, this is where people run into trouble with uh, engineering managers and engineering execs is if the, if the person running engineering doesn't understand the code base well enough, then you end up putting, you know, too many people on something that really uh, would be better done by one person or too few people on something that you know, that's going to end up being the bottleneck for the whole company. And so, you know, it is really critical that you understand how things work so that you can organize, um, you know, you can organize the work in a way that's sensible. And, you know, sometimes people, I, I think, get enamored with this idea if you can just have a people manager managing engineers, but I've not seen that work that well, at least over over time. Yeah, that's why you have these product visionaries you know, people like yeah. Linus Torvalds who kind of know exactly what they want it to look like, right? He calls himself the, you know, benevolent dictator for life for a reason, uh, <laughs> yes. right? So, you know, those guys will come in and they say, look, this is, this is how I want it all to fit together, you know, Steve Jobs and so on. And they lean in and they make sure that they cut through those organizational boundaries. It's possible to do it, but it's just easier to make people... Uh, you know, make sure that the org chart and the reporting lines align with what you want to ship. Yep. <laughs> yep. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always way, way better. I've never seen a team move fast who did not do that. Um, I got a, so here's a question for you, Ali. And this is a good one for you because this is one that you dealt with. How do you transition from a boss to actual teams, uh, a boss of actual teams to, boss of bosses. It's a transition we are going through now, and I'm wondering if there are any lessons there. So this is a, a question from uh, one of the CEOs in the portfolio. 
Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, the mistakes I did uh, when I managed uh, teams to go into managing managers uh, is that, you know, you're in the details and you're kind of saying exactly how you want things done. Um, and you're doing it exactly the same thing. What what used to make you successful, you're doing it again. So I, I remember I hired a really, really awesome exec that's still at Databricks. Uh, and I did the same thing. I sort of managed him the same way. Like, you know, this is exactly what we need. And we're going to do this. And we're going to do a check-in and so on. And, you know, after three weeks, he came back and he said, hey, look, I'm, this, is, this job is probably not for me. I'm, I'm probably going to quit. I said, why? He said, look, it's like, you know, you hired a high-level exec to come in and run this, you know, job for you. And you're barely letting me do my job. Uh, so, you know, why do you need me here? Um, but then I was thinking to myself, you know, but he's not doing things right. You know, there's a reason why I'm telling him, don't do it this way, do it that way. <laughs> you know, because yeah. you're kind of messing it up. Like, you should listen to me. I know better than you, right? Um, so what I learned over time is figure out to be more declarative. So we come up with some high-level boundaries that, you know, you agree to deliver these things, and then you give them enough room so that they, you know, they have enough rope to go ahead and execute on what, they, what you need from them. But the boundary is still sort of confined, right? So like you have this much, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a really amazing exec, um, but I felt like he was overpaying everyone he was hiring. Uh, every person he was hiring, he was like, oh, you know, you got to pay this guy, you know, 300K, you know, like, but that's too much. We're a startup. We can't afford it. So I would negotiate on every hire with him. Uh, and after a while, I was sort of so infected. Every offer that would come in, we would sort of, it was almost, we were ready to fight, right? He knew I was going to oppose the comp and so on. So what I did instead is said, look, your budget can never be more than, let's say, 10% of all of our revenue. Are you okay with that? And we agreed with finance. And then he, once he agreed to that, I knew that he's, gonna, he's very competitive. He's going to want to stay below that budget. And then I stopped micromanaging every offer. And I let him, look, if you want to overpay one guy, you can do that. But then you won't have money to pay the other guys. Uh, so that kind of, I like those kind of formulations where you high level agree on a framework, which gets me what I need but gives them enough room to go in and implement and, you know, do their leadership stuff with their team. So that, that was a big sort of transition for me, at least. You know, those are great points. So, you know, one of the things I, I would add, like when you think about it at the CEO level, the mistake that I see people make in this transition all the time is they go, okay, we're going from a boss to a team of bosses. Um, but the people they put in the executive positions don't know what they're doing. And yeah. meaning they're like, they might be co-founders or they may be kind of, uh, you know, people who came up in the company and they want to promote them and all these kinds of things. But the challenge, particularly if you're a founder CEO is you can kind of afford to have one person who doesn't quite know what they're doing. And that's you. Um, that's you, the founder CEO who hasn't been CEO. And since you're learning on the job, it's really important to have the other people running the different functions have experience in doing that and know how to do that because if they don't know what they're doing you can't teach them because you don't know what you're doing and then you you really have the blind leading the blind and then everybody in the company suffers so that's i would say one of the more common mistakes i see in the transition and actually yeah ali you had some of that with your predecessor at, at databricks well i actually remember when i became ceo and i came yeah. to you and you know i said hey here's i'm gonna and you said look figure out which one of these execs you can get leverage out of uh, and I thought, oh, don't worry, I'm going to make them all successful. And said, no, no, you can't. How, how are you going to do that? You don't know anything about marketing or sales or, you know, any of these organizations. Like, you can run engineering, but you don't know anything. And I was kind of, I went out of that meeting 
thinking, how does this guy think? I'm really good. I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going <laughs> to, you know, I'm going to up-level all these guys. But within six months, I learned that he's totally right. You know, I'm wasting my time trying to learn how to do these functions really, really well. Uh, there's no way I can get up to speed. And it's just take forever and it's just not efficient. And I'm micromanaging this person. So might as well just find the person that can actually, you can get leverage out of. They give you, they make you look better. Uh, so that's absolutely true. But even when you find someone that's awesome, if they're seasoned, they don't want to be micromanaged by you. So you still have to find a way, how do you manage them from a high level to get what you need while giving them enough room uh, to go do the things that they need to do to lead their teams. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and you can't do that if they don't know what they're doing. And so it, you know, it ends up being like paradoxical. Uh, and then the CEO job itself, right. Is not doing all the jobs. And this is, this is the, you know, the other mistake that people make as they move to this, it's not your job to, you know, and then sometimes GCs will say this, well, you have to be the top salesman in the company and you have to be the top more the top marketer you have to be this no, no you have to be ceo <laughs> yeah meaning you have to make the key decisions you have to set the direction of the company you have to build the team and those things only you can do and so if you're doing all these other things that whoever thinks you should do you know i've said ceos want to do their own payroll i'm just like like are you building a big company or is this a mom and pop you know like at some point you've got to get leverage and you've if you're going to push the company forward and into the future and beat the competition and all these things, and you get stuck in this nonsense, um, which are they, and they're kind of like psychological traps because, well, like, am I not scrappy if I don't do my own payroll? It's like, well, no, you're an idiot if you do your own payroll because it's like the company needs to grow. Sorry. Yeah. So and there are a few things <laughs> you can tell you. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's a point, you know, there's a point where CEOs kind of, you know, founder, founder CEOs, especially first time ones kind of get, get this, you know, let's say advice <laughs> or strong suggestion um, from, from the board. And then they, you know, they, they sort of start to get into the art of delegation, building out the management team. And then there's this, it seems like there's this pattern um, where they can then get actually quite disconnected from, I would say product, but also strategy. Um, and all of a sudden they're governing the company, but like the strategy and the product are being set by other people and not as well. And then there, there's, there's, it feels like there could be a sharp reverse in the other direction. Maybe you guys could talk about that. Yeah. So we, we, we touched on this a little last week, but this is a great question. And the, the mistake is basically I'm now at 80,000 feet, right? Like I'm up in the sky and I'm looking down on the company and I'm kind of looking at it all kind of evenly across how it's going, and um, I don't know any of the details of anything, and that's that's a really dangerous way to run a company, and almost never works. You and the the metaphor I always like is you fly low and fast. So, you know, at any given time, you're going to really, really understand some aspect of the company that needs the additional focus and the and the power of a CEO focus. Now, no matter, you know, even if you're a mediocre CEO, you do have this amazing power that if you go get involved in something, it's going to start moving and changing and um, you can have an effect on it that that nobody else can really have. And you want to use it. It's one of the, your most important tools that you have in your box. And so you want to scrutinize things, but not all, all the time. You want to do one at a time and the one that needs attention, the one that might have a weak manager, the one that's strategically critically important 
so that they can, and particularly, or the thing that you're great at. So if you're, you are the product visionary, you've got to transfer your ideas and your knowledge and uh, your judgment into the organization. And that may be on an ongoing basis, by the way. Now you can't get into it to the point where you drive everybody crazy because you go in and dictate everything and then you disappear for a month on a sales calls and then they can't make a decision. Like that doesn't work. You have to have a decision-making process that runs without you, but they also get your kind of insight and vision and intellect into it. I wrote a piece a long time ago called the uh, the product CEO paradox, which talks about like, okay, how low how low down is too low, and you know how high up is too high up. But but that's a great question. Yeah, know, that's awesome. Question. To add to that. Yeah. Well, I made I made that mistake. You know, I think I think every CEO has, especially founder CEOs, you probably have a, one superpower, uh, and you're actually in the early days. That's the value you really brought to the company. And then as the company scales, they tell you, you know, are you going to let go? Uh, you know, and you need to scale. To scale, you need to really let go of this department or this thing. And and then so I've seen people that just take their completely, they go detached. And I think that's what you probably wrote about in your blog too. And when they detach, then that function just loses its soul. Uh, so in my case, I was really involved in product really closely at Databricks. You know, I ran those teams, um, even coded on it. And then when you become CEO, they say, you know, well, you know, are you going to micromanage this? Are you going to detach yourself? And it's frustrating, right? When the CEO is busy, they don't have time, but then they occasionally come deep dive into your product. And then they come tell you, hey, move this, do this, change this. That shouldn't be this way. That can be pretty, um, it can be really stressful for the organization. So they, you know, they come along until you have time to deep dive into their thing. And then you come in and reorganize everything. Uh, So what I learned helped me a lot is put structure around it. Uh, just tell them, you know, look, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have reviews that look like this. We're going to have quarterly check-ins that look like this. Here's what comes out of those. It's not complete pivots. Uh, so that you just, so people just know what to expect. Uh, and then yeah. everything becomes normalized and then it's totally fine. And you can actually do those things. You can pick the parts of the product you're good at, or those that are essential to your. So my main advice is just make sure that it's just not an ad hoc drive by armchair, yeah. you know. Uh, sniping at random things and randomizing the org. Yeah, that that that's so important. They need to see you coming. They know, need to know when you're going to be in the process, um, and they need to understand what your role is. That that's all like super critical. Otherwise, yeah, you drive you drive people berserk. And that's by the way one of the main reasons why founders get replaced as CEO is is that exact thing that they go in ad hoc, drive everybody nuts, and then disappear. Um, yeah, they bring really, in the professional yeah. CEO. Yeah, exactly. To kind of, yeah, to make it steady, you know, like it's yeah. just it's, it's too hard for people to work under those conditions. I think Andy um, Grove also, Andy Grove, you know, the, this great sort of phrase he said. He said, you know, I do a lot of nudging in my organization, uh, yeah. and I make I stole that from him, and I make that clear because you know, as your company grows and you you become more and more important in the org, um, the CEO's words have a lot of power. So you know, you pass by and say, oh, I don't like where that button sits. You know, they're going to delete that button and say, who was who the idiot to put it there? You know, CEO didn't like it. So what I do is I just tell them, like, look, this is just a nudge. I think, you know, I don't think this this belongs there, but it's a nudge. It's not a CEO decision. I make that super clear. So then, okay, okay. So this is not like the CEO mandates that we don't need this. So we can actually go. And after time, they learn that, okay, so we can just basically oppose him whenever he's nudging. And, and that way, and I use my CEO card rarely where I go in and say, no, look, guys, I've heard everyone, but we're going to do it my way. 
Um, so you make the distinction between those two. You're basically teaching the org to kind of reach some kind of harmony and not be co constantly sort of frightened by you coming in and uh, wrecking havoc. Right. You yeah, know, that's really good. It's almost like you, you, you want to be more like Socrates and less uh, like General Patton in that sense. 100%. Yeah. Um, okay. This next question is really good. I, I've been looking forward to answering this since we got it. It's from one of uh, both Ali and my favorite people. And um, when we read it, we were like, wow, that that question's all wrong, which just means it's really interesting. <laughs> um, and so here's the question. When talking about hard things to the company, how should you talk about individuals that are accountable for failures? Specifically, how do you tell the truth to maintain credibility while respecting the individuals involved and not disparaging them to their teams? For example, Jethro, not his real name, was not effective as VP of engineering. I hired him, so I am accountable. But when it comes to the company asking, why haven't we shipped more, it's tough. If I say our engineering team has velocity issues that we're working on, the blame is on the entire team and may not be fair since it wasn't most of their jobs to hire, set up processes, et cetera. If I say I mishired leadership here, the blame is on Jethro and people might feel that I am disrespecting him and I also hired the guy. If I say I fucked up by not holding the team accountable earlier, then I'm absolving the leader of this team and basically not doing his job. If I don't say anything or I'm vague, then it seems like we don't have a handle on the situation and are the people that and people make up their own narratives. So what do I do? Um, and then I would be also interested uh, how this conversation might change between the entire, if I'm talking to the entire company or I'm just talking to the executive team. All right, Ali, you want to take the first crack at that one? Yeah, but you've been thinking about it for a whole week, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, hear your I have a lot of, well, it, it's like a, an amazing, beautiful, like psychological mess, right? You got to go um, first then. Yeah, so. So let me kind of talk, you know, take a step back and just talk principles. Um, so the first thing that you always have to think about in any of these is not how you feel. Like how you feel is completely beside the point. And what people think of you as CEO is really beside the point. You have to block that out of your mind because you, in a situation like this, you have to be able to see the organization through other people's eyes. Um, what do they want and what do they need to do their job and, and be comfortable? And so the way he, he phrased the question, he's kind of causes you to miss, like all his choices are, are you know, and he identified them correctly as bad choices. Um, because what you really have to do is say, okay, what do the people in that org need? And then what does the manager need? And then what do the rest of the people in the company need? And so, if we start, okay, what do the rest of the people in the company need to know? All they need to know is that you're aware <laughs> that you're shipping slowly. They don't need to know why. They don't need to know how you're going to fix it. They just need to know that you know there's a problem and so that they can then feel like, okay, Ben is going to get to it at some point and he'll deal with it. I don't have to be sitting here worried that the company is going down the drain and the CEO doesn't even know what the F is going on. So like, if you can do that, that usually is enough as long as you get to it to just let them know, hey, I know we're shipping slowly. Um, then there's the people on the team. Uh, 
And like, that's a much more kind of detailed understanding that you have to know to like, okay, what are, in what ways are we not communicating? What are the processes wrong? Have we not divided up the work correctly? Are we not working hard enough and so forth? This is, you know, much, much more complicated. Um, but for now, like, you don't want to freak them out um, by telling them like, okay, the whole thing is is a mess and engineering sucks and the rest of the company is carrying us and, you know, I'm going to probably have to cap because they're going to just hear that as like, okay, we're all getting fired. Um, and then for the manager, which is probably the trickiest one, you can't say to the company <laughs> that it's the head of engineering's fault <laughs> and not fire him. Like that's because you have just basically made him ineffective for the rest of his time in your company. Like there, nobody's ever going to listen to that guy again. If I go to my company, hey, you know, we haven't been shipping stuff because our head of engineering doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Then he's there. And you wouldn't say it in exactly those words, but no words are going to work because nobody's ever going to listen to him again. Because the CEO just said, like, I think he's a bozo. And, and every day that goes, every day that yeah. goes that you haven't fired him, you're the bozo. Yeah, you're, you're the bozo. Even, you're not even doing your job of firing him. And his whole organization is degenerating. Attrition is happening. Like the whole thing is just unraveling. And so that, you know, that's the worst thing. So, look, what you want to do is you want to, you, you know, clearly you haven't made the assessment yet of whether you want to fire the head of engineering. So all you can do. You know, if you if like people are barking about it and so forth, and you need to say something just to damp down the company, say, look, we're a young company. We built up the organization quickly. We're learning a lot of things. We haven't shipped as quickly as we want to, but look, we're on it. I'm working on it. Jethro's working on it, and we're driving to to improve things. Now, at some point, you'll have to decide. You know, does Jethro have to go? Uh, and then that makes the answer simple or like maybe it is a communication issue or maybe it's something else, but you never want to, <laughs> you know, kind of alleviate your own pain because people are going, man, you run a suck ass company by like laying somebody out or kind of uh, dismantling their ability to, to be effective. So you really have to be sensitive to that. And, 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 you know, this happens, this problem will happen a lot to you if you think about how people are thinking about you. Um, it's not how they're thinking about you. It's what do they need to do to get their jobs done and not be distracted by stupid stuff that's going on in your company. But I, <laughs> let me stop there. So Ali, you have a chat to talk at this. Well, that's so awesome. How do I one up that? I mean, my favorite, uh, my, my favorite actually talk by you is a talk you gave on Toussaint. Uh, this is before you wrote uh, your second book. Uh, uh, and you talked about how he, his strength was how he could empathize with pretty much anyone, e even the, the slave owners of the time. And that was his brilliance. And I think that is the essence of what you're saying, is that as a leader, if you can actually connect with the different, if you can understand, because everybody's sitting there saying, what does this mean for me? Should I get a new job? Is my boss getting fired? Is this company screwed? What do I like? Yeah. What does this mean for me, 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 me? And so if you as a leader can simulate and put yourself in the different people's shoes, then you, it's not actually that hard to arrive at, at the answers that you actually gave now. The problem is yeah. we're all, we ourselves are also obsessed by ourselves. You know, how am I going to be perceived? What are you going to think about me? I hired this guy. 
you know, what should I be saying? What do people think about me when I say this and that? So it's all about me too. So I think that's the, that's, that's my favorite uh, talk by you. And I think that's the essence of this. Uh, the other thing I would say is the question itself has too much focus on the blame. There's too much of a blame game. Like whose fault right. is this? Is this your fault? Is it head of engineering's fault? Is it that team's fault? Who's the blame? But I would say blame is actually uninteresting. It's what's important for the organization is to know, know what are we doing about it constructively? You know, if there's a massive product problem, as you said, we'll tell them we know about the problem, we're fixing it and it's gonna be awesome. And here's the plan. Um, the second thing I would say is be authentic. I never lie to my organization. And I think one of the cool things that founder CEOs have, which a lot of corporate people don't have that you know grew up in big organizations, they become you know politicians. I think we can be quite authentic and just say it as it is. So yes. I think, yeah, so do that. Tell them, tell them, tell them the truth, but don't throw people under the bus. Don't uh, play the blame game. Uh, but if there's an issue with the product, don't hide it and say, no, there's nothing to look for here. The product is awesome. Yeah, uh, my, that's obviously my uh, one of my, one of uh, Mark and my partners, Chris Dixon, has this uh, kind of great thing that he says, which is there are only two kind of human narratives um, that have ever gotten traction. One is good versus evil, and the other is man against the gods or humans against the gods. <laughs> kind of you know Greek tragedy versus uh, you know Shakespeare. Yeah. And if you're running a company. You want to never do good versus evil. It's always humans against the gods, which is the system. And yep. if there's a problem, it's a system. You, you should always start with, it's a systems problem. We're not aligned. We're not communicating. We don't have the right goals. The system has been designed to pit us against each other. And I need to unravel that as the kind of benevolent dictator of the system. And if you start from there, then you can be very authentic without blaming people, as, as you say. And I think that, you know, this accountability is one of those things where, you know, it's at a very, very specific point in time when you decide to fire somebody or give somebody a raise or, or what have you, but you don't need that in play most of the time. And it is a huge kind of warping idea because it really moves incentives a lot when you get into this good versus evil thing and in generally in a very bad way. Yeah. So don't make it about that person. And the other thing I would say is you're setting culture precedent in your organization. So if oh, you're yeah. throwing <laughs> yeah, so you're throwing this guy under the bus in front of your whole organization, your other execs are going to be looking over their shoulder all the time. Yep. And they're going to change their behavior with respect to you too. They're not going to tell you the truth either because they're now afraid that you know any given day you might turn on them. And in which case you're going to go to all hands and tell everybody in the company uh, what a jackass they are and everything is, you know, you're the evil and everything is your fault. Uh, yeah. So it'll just destroy your culture also. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No question. I mean, you get there. You don't get mimicked on everything as CEO, but you 100% get mimicked on that <laughs> constantly. Yeah. So that that's how everybody's going to manage. And it's going to be a brutal, you know, not fun place to work um, because the thing is, like, your judgment isn't always right on these things. Um, so yeah. you got to be very, very careful. There's the second part of this question, which was, uh, would the conversation change in an executive inner circle? Yes. I think that you have to be very careful on that because you have the same problems. So as soon as you uh, kind of assign blame like if you assign blame without taking action, that's just a problem. 
you can't say to the head of marketing, the head of engineering is, you know, screwed up his organization, didn't hire the best people, doesn't run a good process, and therefore we're shipping late, and leave him in his job. Like yeah. that, 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 that will never work. That's just a terrible idea. And so you, you just have to say, look, we're aware. Um, and you know, look, there's all kinds of things that slow down projects from coming out of engineering. You know, it could be the product requirements change too often, or, um, you know, we didn't get people up to speed or our engineering infrastructure wasn't good enough or like whatever it is, you know, like checking in code takes too long. Um, so, you know, you got to give yourself room if you haven't figured it out and you haven't concluded to fire a person, then it's wide open what the cause could be. And so all you can say is, yeah, we need to figure out how to ship faster, but like that's something that, you know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, this is the whole thing is my responsibility and like, we're going to sit down and figure it out and we're I guarantee you this, we're going to ship faster. Um, and like, maybe you, you know, but you can't blame somebody. Yeah, I mean, when you blame them, they're done. But I do yeah. think there's a point at which they are done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you should be, at that point, you should be honest with both them and the team. Uh, yes. You know, th this is your inner circle team. Your inner circle team, you should have absolute trust with them. Uh, but it is true that in that inner circle te team, if you then say, hey, you know, yeah, engineering, you know, we know that doesn't work. Yeah, then, then you know, none of them will respect. They'll bl blame everything on engineering. And that exec that runs that function if they had any slightest chance to succeed, that's gone now. Yeah, and that's kind of the corollary, which is the time between when you make a decision that somebody's not going to make it and you need to fire them and you fire them should be, you know, no more than like 30 minutes. I mean, you just have to do it. Uh, and I always say on firing, there's only people, CEOs only fire executives on two schedules now or never. <laughs> um, you know, they either procrastinate forever, you know, basically undermine the executive, destroy the whole function, or they do it now. Um, there, nobody waits two weeks and then fires somebody. They, it's now or never. And so yeah. you gotta, you gotta be a now CEO. I love that. All right. Um, <laughs> awesome. So next question, uh, this is an interesting one uh, from one of our CEOs. How does the boss herself know her blind spot and who micromanages her if, say, the board of directors isn't closely connected to the day-to-day? -day? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like, you know, in early startups, the truth is nobody really. I mean, the yep. board is kind of looking at you, but- You're all but alone. You're kind of, yeah, you're kind of alone. And yeah. you might think that's awesome. So I don't have a boss. So yeah. actually, this is like fantastic. Actually, it's not because uh, you're gonna the things will deteriorate and you will not see it, and you'll just slowly kind of destroy your company and you know people lose trust in you. And then the time by the time the board actually fires you or replaces you, it's things have gone pretty bad and it, a yeah. lot of time has passed. Uh, so avoid that. It's it's really bad. It's bad for you. By the way, it's going to be a pretty sad story for you yourself too, because um, you know it's like at, by the end of it, before they fire you or big change happens, you know this it's just going to be a bad story all around. You know you're you know you're missing numbers, things are not going well. There's a lot of infighting, the culture is deteriorating, people are quitting. Uh, that's sort of end of the movie. So avoid that. So always start with focusing on the most important problem you have to fix in your company. What's the biggest bottleneck? 
that you have to unblock. I think in startups, that's the most important way to think about it because these are not big organizations where you're just doing slow change management and tweaking some numbers in some Excel sheet. You should just focus on what's the biggest bottleneck in my company right now? What's preventing my company right now from crushing it? What is it? Is it, it doesn't have product market fit? It has a go-to-market problem? What is it? Why is it? What's the best thing I can do to unblock that? And then hold yourself accountable to that one or two things that you need to do to unblock it. Uh, that's really how you should be thinking about it. Then there's another thousand things you need to do. You need to hire people, you need to do one-on-ones, you need to do all hands talks and blah, blah, blah. But make sure that you always nail that number one bottleneck that you need to unblock. Because frankly, no one else can really unblock the number one bottleneck for your company. You're the only yeah, one that yeah. has the power to sort of go to all the departments <laughs> and push the whole company to really focus on it. If they could, it wouldn't be the bottleneck. That's yeah. that's generally the rule. And you know, you kind of bring up a really good thing there, which is, um, and this is where I see so many CEOs screwed up. There, there's always like nasty ass problems in every company, um, and you really don't, you know, just it doesn't feel good to know even know about them because okay you built this organization you hired everybody it's your idea and there's something like all screwed up and that's broken um but if you run away from that then you're 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 never going to be a good ceo you have to run at that every time and you know that that's probably one of the most important disciplines and the big distinction between high velocity founders uh, founders that become really good CEOs and founders that fail at that is, can you deal with lots of confrontation, running at problems, dealing with gnarly issues, dealing with the stuff that's the most embarrassing to you about how your company works? Um, or do you avoid it? Do you procrastinate? Do you run away? And if you run away, um, you know, you, it's just not going to end well for you or the company. Yeah, and I think you should also really, really, you know, think about revolutionary things you can do to fix. If there are endemic problems, like, you know, we had a finance problem. We, we had outsourced finance. It was all over the place. Our knit suite was not working. The finance org was terrible shape. And, yeah. and it doesn't even sound it, fun to fix, right? <laughs> like, yeah, that's not something like, that sounds like you want to spend your day on. Yeah, should we get a new NetSuite license? The one we have is wrong. Our systems are wrong. We need to move them over. We need to get this. But like, we're not even closing the books the right way. Collections hasn't happened. The org is. And we let this happen. And the problem, and I see a lot of people do this. It's like, well, you know, let's try to fix this. Let's try to get a new license and so on. Um, you know, and many of my co-founders jumped in and said, look, let's just dive in. Let's try to understand exactly what's going on. What I instead did is I said, I don't want to even meet about this stuff. I don't want to do anything about this. I just, you know, I just focused all my attention to find the replacement for the person who ran that org. I hired them and then fired the previous guy. And then that person came in and just fixed the whole problem, right? They just said, wow, it's just, this is like amateur. You don't even know where to start. Like, you know, <laughs> right. let me just fix this for you. We, you know, 60%, like we used to think that we had, um, he said, look, you think you have 3 million ARR but you only actually have a million of it in the bank. And so where's the rest? He said, well, we haven't collected it. So well, how do we collect it? Like, you got to bill people. I was yeah. like, well, we haven't built them? He's like, no, over the last year and a half, most of them haven't been built. It's like, what do we do? He's like, well, I'm just going to get a shitload of contractors and they're going to sit on the phone. They're going to call people and we're going to get, we're going to collect this stuff. Uh, so focus on that main problem and then really do whatever is needed. Like, you know, if you need to use a big hammer, do it to, 
to really eradicate the problem. Don't let this linger and try to figure out yourself and you're like, you know, letting these problems that are really sort of toxic for your organization let's linger on for a year or a year and a half. You can just, what would you do if you had to fix it in three months or one month or a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, definitely. And then <laughs> that's a funny problem, you know, not collecting the money. That, that, that problem, if you don't fix, will cause real issues down the road, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. By the way, he was able to collect quite a bit of it. It was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, right. so it's, it's, it happened pretty fast. But I had to get the right leader and fire the previous person quickly. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, okay. Here, here's an interesting question. How do you measure progress on quote product market fit when you're in a risk averse market like healthcare with 18 month sales cycles? On the flip side, in healthcare, the problems Pro- we're solving tend to be more evergreen. For example, treatments for known diseases. So, is product market fit in the traditional sense even all that rele- relevant a milestone? That's a tough question. Um, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I would say at Databricks, uh, the product we build, it, we're not building Slack or something you know, easy that you know a consumer comes in and uses. It's big data. You have to have lots and lots of data, and you have to have complicated projects that have to do with AI. So. Um, it's, it's not a quick, you know, quick fix. And what we did is we just looked at various types of metrics of usage and adoption. Uh, initially we gave the product away actually to a customer for free, the first version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got lots and lots and we would track what they were doing with the product and we would do sort of very, very close back cycles with them. And they would tell us like, this isn't working, do it this way, do it that way. Uh, so. We just looked at because we know it's like we have too too far to go to really land this and you know charge people up front. So we just focused on adoption metrics and usage on the product and ignored revenue, ignored everything else. Now, having said that, there's mm-hmm. a funny story here. Um, since the product was free, you kind of get what you pay for. At some point, usage <laughs> yeah. was going down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Usage went down on the product, and we went to ask them, you know, what do you think about the product? They're like, no, it's great. We said, well, why aren't you using it? And say, well, you know, you keep wiping out all of the data once a week in our system. And it's like terrible. So we have to like upload everything. Every, all, everything we did gets wiped out. So I went to the engineering team and I said, is this true? And said, yeah, every time we do an upgrade, we wipe everything out. We can't do that to a customer, you know? So that's the flip side of it, you know? Since they weren't paying for it, they weren't kicking and yelling and screaming. Uh, they just stopped using it. But I think the only thing I can think of, this is a difficult problem. I would focus on various types of adoption. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. You know, will they use it for free? Will they pay for it? Um, will they pay you enough money to to cover the cost of your sales team? You know, will they pay you enough to sustain the company? There's kind of different. I think people think of product market fit as too discrete a thing sometimes, yeah. and um, you know, they there are kind of layers of it. And in healthcare, in particular, um, <clears throat> there's product market fit not just to the end customer, but to insurance to um, the doctors to the, you know, to the healthcare providers, you know, you need fit with all of them and they all have different requirements. So I think it is a really relevant concept, but you have to, you know, it's not just, okay, do I have a drug that deals with the disease that people have? It's, do I have a drug that deals with the people that disease that people have that's better than every other drug that doctors want to use because it's got the characteristics that they like that, people will, the insurance companies um, will go for, and I've kind of built that relationship or that kind of channel into their 
and all that kind of thing. So you, I think you have to look at it really holistically and be honest with yourself about where you are in every single dimension. Because like, if you really, if you get real product market fit, which means that, you know, uh, customers will buy your product and pay you plenty of money to keep your company going, then you're, then you're at the scale phase. You're in a totally different ball game. But if you're not there and you try and scale your company, that's going to probably be the end of your company. Um, so it's a really important concept in that sense. Yeah, and some people rush ahead too fast. And, you know, yeah. I, I think, you know, especially, you know, finance-centric uh, board members will look at yeah. your metrics and say, where's your revenue and what's your sort of CAC and what's your CAC ratio and what's the what's the attainment of your sales reps and so on. That So you start scaling too early before you really have that product market fit. I think that can be hugely problematic too because then you increase your burn. So now you're yeah. burning a lot of money because now you have 30, 40 people on your payroll and yeah. you're burning a lot of cash. Um, and you still don't have that real sort of product market fit. Um, so <laughs> spending time and really figuring that out, I think is really, really important. My favorite chart ever was that chart. Um, it was at Databricks before you became the COLA when they showed like, look, we're beating our sales plan <laughs> every quarter. <laughs> and I'm like, and if you continue that for 50 years, you're still not going to have a company. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if you set the goal low enough, you can beat the plan. Um, yeah. yeah, so lying to yourself is probably the one of the greatest dangers that you have as CEO because you know you're always trying to be optimistic to get everybody excited, but um, if you take that too far and lie to yourself, you can you can really get yourself into a lot of trouble. Yeah, I think uh, you have to be yeah. a paranoid optimist. Yes, a paranoid optimist. Uh, this is a good one. This is a good one for you because you've just been going through this. Beyond executive search, what are the most successful tactics you've used to source great leadership VP talent? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, I mean, this was, if this is an early stage company like Series A or Seed, the profile of people that you hire are very different. So yeah. in the early days, the folks that we would get, they would just believe in the dream and would give them equity that basically they thought is not worth anything, but they were just high risk takers. Um, and then that yeah. profile changes over time. So, you know, it's different people that you find at the different stages. So you can't actually get anyone you like, um, but you should, in my opinion, network with the best that you can find in the market. Uh, and what I used to do is try to find out who's the best HR leader, who's the best marketing leader, who's the be best sales leader. And then and just how do you do that? Hey, when you say, okay, I'm going to find out who the best HR leader is. How do you, how just, do you go about doing that? Well, I actually often I would come to you guys and I would say, hey, in the portfolio, who's like the best HR leader? You would say, oh, that company's head of HR is really, really good, but don't take that person. I would say, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then, you, you know, then you start networking with them, start dining with them. And then one great thing you can do is just say, hey, I just want you to advise me. People mm -hmm. love advising. Yeah. You know, everybody loves giving advice to other people. So well, and, great, and great, great people know great people also. Yeah. Then you tell them, look, I'm you know, having a hard time hiring for this role, then sell them. Say, look, this is a company, but I don't know how to sell it. And get them to pitch you on how to sell your company. As they do that, they get to learn. Do the pitch on them without telling them that you're actually hiring them for your company. Uh, and kind of get them. This has happened to me numerous times. People that just say, yeah, I'm not interested in the role. I just want to advise you. And you tell me, yeah, 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 just help me. And they're like, well, what kind of profile are you looking for? It's like, then you sell them on your company. And then at the end, many, many times it happens that they turn around and say, you know, I'm actually kind of interested in this myself. Uh, yeah. And then, and then run a fast process. Don't, don't let things sort of, you know, take a long time. 
My favorite thing to do is people that are unsure, I insert something called the 3612 process at the end, which means come in and do a 3612 presentation, your three month plan, six month plan, and 12 month plan. But then I give them an yeah. overview of here are the things I want you to do. And then at the end of that presentation, I ask them, why, why Databricks? And they have to make slides then explaining why they want to join that company. <laughs> so you flip yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, so you flip it, right? So what happens is I've had people who don't want to really join Databricks. I get them through the 3612 process. Then they make their slides of why they want to join Databricks. Mm. Then when they present <laughs> that, turn reverse psychology on them. Tell them, well, is that really true? Is that really why you want to join here? I don't think that's actually true about us, that we're that good at this. Then they start <laughs> arguing you, selling you, no, 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 you are a great company. I really do want to join this thing. And then you kind of, so they kind of sell themselves making those slides and going through that presentation. Uh, so I think there's a, you have to do a lot of work if you want to sort of go again, if you want to get big, you know, punch above your weight class, you have to find asymmetric ways you can get these guys. Uh, the executive search might not yeah. yield you the people you want. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's um... Barry Diller, uh, who's you know he's the famous Hollywood mogul, and then uh, you know ran the IAC and all that kind of stuff, and is still pretty active, even though he's he's getting up there in age now. Um, but he he had a thing that he said, which he never uses executive recruiters um, because he knows lots of people, and he just finds out who's the best, and he goes and tries to hire them. And I think that's a you know generally a good attitude. I'm not advocating never using an executive recruiter, but you know, like you're in the industry, you know, people in the industry, you find out who's good, um, you know, and good people have lineages. It's kind of like the coaching trees in the NFL, you know, they, you know, the, the next person under the great person is generally good. Um, and so that, you know, that, that ends up being a really good way to find people. And sometimes right, the next that, person underneath yeah. them is the better one. Because like you said, yeah. you know, executive leverage, maybe they're doing your job well, so they hired someone that they're getting a lot of leverage. So that's the person that's actually the brains behind one portion. So you can hire them and you can give them the bigger title and they're super hungry to prove it to, to the world that they can actually run the whole function. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, this next question is interesting. I think I'm gonna start the answer because you're really, you're actually, this is a thing that I think you're probably better at than, you know, than almost any other kind of founder CEO that I work with, which is, and the question is this, I'm, no pressure. although you are a technical founder, but <laughs> but it, it applies, it doesn't matter if you're technical or not. I'm a, a non-technical founder and I'm keen on hiring folks who know more than me. Most folks on my team are amazing and relish that I want to learn from them. However, some take advantage of my knowledge gaps and that I lead with vulnerability. This happened with two team leads, finance and engineering, and I had to eventually let them go. I wish I had caught it sooner. What could I do better to avoid this situation? And so this is, this is a really interesting one because so many CEOs have this problem, um, which is kind of your founder, you don't really know what you're doing yet. Um, so you're very open to input from the super senior accomplished executives that you bring in to hire, right? So you go, oh yeah, I really want to learn about that. And then they take it, <laughs> they take that openness and they use it to basically manipulate you. Um, and it could be all kinds of things. They manipulate you to get more money. They manipulate you to get somebody else's territory. They manipulate you into driving the company in a direction that you may not like or allowing them to violate your culture, or all these kinds of things. Um, and the the kind of key thing is uh, 
founders will be, I would say the way I'd characterize it is they're too open um, and then they end up being too much on defense. And there are certain things that you just can't be open to when you're CEO. <laughs> like if somebody says, well, you know, like I think professional services could go under me, unless you're going to give that person professional services, you can't be open to that. You can't even be open to that discussion because they're going to take that conversation and they're going to run outside the organization and use it against you. I just talked to Ali and he said that like he was open to me taking professional services. So you're going to be working for me next week. Like that type of stuff will happen, you know, particularly with these guys who come from big companies um, who are trained on, on that kind of idea. Um, but you, you are very good at staying on offense um, even as you learn. Uh, and kind of my, my favorite uh, example of that, if you don't mind, I'm going to tell one data break story. Right. Uh -oh. I, I, I love this story so much. So, you know, you hired a, like a really outstanding head of sales. Um, and, you know, this is when like Databricks wasn't selling anything and not even collecting the money of the stuff that they sold. <laughs> uh, but like maybe a month into it, you call me and go, you know, I'm not so sure about these sales guys um, that, that Ron is bringing in. Ron, Ron is the head of sales uh, and he's, he's quite good. I'm not so sure about these guys. You know, they're selling stuff, products that we don't even have. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what do you mean? What are they selling that you don't have? And he's like, well, you know, like we had this deal and um, he, like the sales guy made up this professional services packages and this training package. We don't have that. And I was like, well, why did he do that? And he's like, well, you know, they, he said that the product, you know, the customer had $450,000 and the product only cost $250,000. So he needed <laughs> another $200,000 worth of stuff, <laughs> which was exactly. kind of great that both it's a great lesson in enterprise sales and how, how it tends to work, you know, and good enterprise sales people find out exactly how much money the customer has before they price anything out, but also price to budget, was, price to budget, <laughs> price to budget. But it's also great that you weren't letting them just get away with that. It wasn't just like you were open and you were going to learn and you weren't going to question that fucking craziness. Um, so, you, you know, that is right balance. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you do that, how you are open to learning but aren't open to bullshit? Yeah, first of all, I think, you know, you can go first principles and ask questions and you can learn a lot. Like, you know, trust yourself and just ask. Like, you know, everything is logical and sort of adds up. So, you know, just, just be curious. Second thing, I make sure to, I learned this early on as a CEO. Like you said, hey, these, these people are pros. They come in and say, hey, can I run professional services? And you're like, yeah, well, that, why not? And then <laughs> yeah. that becomes a decision. They sort of manipulate your words. So I decided very early on, I'm not going to make any decisions ever, like in the heat of the moment. So whenever someone says, hey, I have a quick thing for you, just takes two seconds. Can you approve this thing or that thing? Or can we just get, can I please get two head count for this? I've just decided that even if it's like a, the most obvious idea to me, I will not approve it. Like even <laughs> the if it's like super no. obvious. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I always say, put it in an email, send it to me. Uh, yeah. I never say, I even tell them no hallway approvals. I don't do hallway approvals. Like even if it's super obvious, just can you put it in an email? Because I'm like, Right now, stressed. I'm running between meetings. I'm late. Sorry, man. Send me an email. Uh, so just make sure that uh, you know you get a night's sleep so you can think about it because you know these things have repercussions. Uh, but what I like to do is I like to organize the org chart so that actually my exec team keeps each other honest. Uh, yeah. You know, so that it's not me versus each each of the departments. You know, my customer success focuses on long term customer value. Sales needs to bring in the short term revenue. They keep each other in check. Uh, marketing brings in the demand gen. 
but sales makes sure that they actually are delivering on the demand gen that they have. Engineering produces a product, sales need to be able to sell it. So create forums and meetings in which the, the different departments can hold each other accountable without it getting toxic, without it getting personal, saying you suck, you don't produce the right product. No, you suck, you overpromised. You know, keep the tone right, but make sure that they keep each other in check. That's much better than me going, trying to be the sort of police of each department. Because I won't yeah. be able to even know where the problems are. These departments can keep each other in check much better than I can. So that's that's yeah. my favorite way of setting it up. And then having forums where you can attend those meetings and you just see all the sort of, all the dirty laundry kind of comes up. And how do you overcome that feeling that CEOs have where they want to feel like I'm in charge, I can be decisive, I can make a decision, this isn't a bureaucracy? Because now you're saying, no, nah, I can't even hear you send me an email. I'll think about it later. Like, how how do you balance, like, how do you damp down that emotion? That I, I never had that problem. I always thought that yeah. when I say, send me an email, they're like, he's smart. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I mean, I see them smiling. <laughs> like, you know, I tell them, hey, I can't do a hallway. We're sorry, I'm late for a meeting. They smile and say, this guy's pretty smart. You know, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Uh, yeah. So, like, you can't send me a one-line email and you get a reply immediately. I'm on my email all the time, sending, like, 500 of them a, year, a day. So, like, so, but the other thing I like doing, which actually works for me, is every team has OKRs on what they need to yeah. deliver every quarter. Mm-hmm. But we do them as a group. So, sales will get up and say, hey, we're going to deliver these things next quarter. Yeah. Then I ask my rest of my team, hey, do you have any other requirements on sales? And usually a lot of the dirty laundry comes up there, too. They'll say, you know, marketing will say, well, hey, can we please get some customer references? Like, we never get customer references. Can you sell? And they're like, okay, sure. Like, we'll put a spiff to get customer references. And, you know, and customer success will, you know, lean in and say, hey, can we actually kind of focus on these existing big deals, upsells that we have? And so they'll kind of keep each other honest and ask for the stuff. And it'll surface a lot of the frictions that otherwise would happen throughout the quarters. I like just doing that up front, you know, let them let them keep each other in check than you having to do it. That's my that's my preference preferred way of doing it. It's much more scalable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then they're they're bought into it. And then the pressure is you know, it's kind of a key thing. It's are they putting pressure on you or are you putting pressure on them? And I think the mistake that a lot of CEOs make is they let their team put too much pressure on them. Uh, and you you're always much more effective. And and by the way, the team is more happy when you reverse that. Because everybody feels helpless if the pressure is on the CEO, whereas if the pressure is on them, then they can do something about it. It's just much more scalable. There's more of them, and they can sort of interact and solve it between them, and it empowers them. Um, And also, you don't need to be that one bad cop. That's like it's Ali versus every department. It's like, no, look, you know, marketing can't do their job if they can't put up a customer logo on their web page, and you know, you're the one talking to all the customers. They wanted that. Can you give that to them? Then you can just say, hey, can I just? Is that an okay or how many logos? Was it two logos or five? Okay, three. Okay, fine. Uh, so you can like just, you know, you can stay out of it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. All right, one last question, um, and then we'll wrap up this week's session of Boss Talk. We'd like to keep it nice and tight because we're bosses and bosses keep stuff on schedule. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's that Boss Talk. Uh, so, uh, this is from this is one from Twitter from uh, somebody named Cole Rob uh, from Twitter. Thank you, Cole Rob. And Cole Rob would like to know our views on Silicon Valley post pandemic. What do you expect to change significantly? Oh man, you should go first. You guys have done so many surveys and you have so many companies <laughs> in the portfolio. I want to hear your answer. 
Yeah, so um, there's many dimensions to this. Uh, and I think the two main factors are, uh, what does it take to keep your company competitive? Um, and then the second one is, um, which is related is, you know, what does it take to keep it competitive in the marketplace? And then the other is, what does it take to keep you competitive in the uh, battle for talent? And in the battle for talent, I think, you know, that's really where the change or, or the big change dynamic is, um, is, is, is going to be irresistible, at least in my view, in the sense that uh, if you, people really value, so CEOs live very close to the office. <laughs> Let me just say that. There's not a CEO in the world that doesn't live 10 minutes from wherever the headquarters is. Um, but employees don't, you know, they tend to live much farther away often. Um, and that commute is really brutal. And then one of the things that, you know, we've gotten from the surveys that's been very eye-opening to me is, um, in particularly for uh, mothers, I've gotten a loads and loads of feedback saying, look, this pandemic is the first time I felt like I can have a career and be a mother and be great at both. And so that is a something you're not going to put back in the box, I don't think. I don't think people are going to go, okay, <laughs> I no longer want that. You know, that that's a thing that people are going to want forever, you know, now that they've had it. And so if any company offers work from home, you know, it's going to be a lot like years ago, there were no free lunches in Silicon Valley. You'd like go to the cafeteria and buy your lunch. Um, when I started working, that's how it worked. You know, it was like you buy your lunch, you know, free lunch. It's kind of obvious thing. Um, but then Google started doing free lunches. And it didn't matter at some point whether you thought that was a good idea or like really stupid to give everybody free lunch. It's just that's what happened um, because you couldn't any longer be competitive for talent because it was like, what kind of sweatshop wouldn't give us free food? Um, you know, that's basically how they got it. Now it's to the point where, like, okay, that juice is okay, but it's not organic, <laughs> you know, like, and, that, and that kind of, you know, crazy stuff. So I think that, you know, the, the work from home, like having that option for a lot of employees, for a lot of talent, it's going to be hard to not have that. And then once you have that, once you say, okay, some people can work from home, at least, you know, a large amount of the time, maybe they have to come in for certain things, then you have to go, okay, well, how do meetings occur? And then if you, like, I think everybody's experienced meetings on Zoom, they work really well if everybody's on Zoom. They don't work well at all if some people are on Zoom and some people are in the room. The people are on Zoom are massively disadvantaged. And so then you go, okay, are we a Zoom first meeting um, organization? Okay, and then once you do that, then there's a question of, okay, why are you in the office? Um, and for some people it would be like, well, I'm not going to be in the office because I can meet on Zoom, like I can do all the stuff. And so, you know, that is, I think, how it's going to roll from the employee competitive standpoint. I think from a, you know, then you get into competitiveness. What is the culture like? What is the common set of behaviors that we adhere to? How do you enforce that? How do you change that? How do you build trust and loyalty over time with employees? Because face-to-face, you know, who are you loyal to who you've not spent time, you know, face-to-face with? Like, does that even exist? Is that possible? And so you, you have to deal with that kind of issue. And then you've got 
um, career pathing. Okay, so this person comes into the office every day. I'm in the office every day, and then his his peer is working from home. Who's getting promoted? You know, who do I trust more? Goes back to that, and and you know those kinds of things. And then you get into somebody like Databricks, who's got selling. Um, and I, I don't know any enterprise salespeople who think like they can't beat somebody who's on Zoom if they show up and walk the halls and get all the backstories and don't and get more right. There's what you learn in the meeting, but what do you learn before the meeting and after the meeting? Because that doesn't exist when you're on Zoom. That only exists when you're in person. Um, and you know, are you disadvantaged in that way? So there's a lot of I, I would just say considerations. I, it's hard for. I, I've stopped trying to predict it. I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to do. But those are the, some of the things that that I'm. I would say I'm worried about. Yeah, I mean that's excellent. I I don't think anyone's going back in, in Silicon Silicon Valley. I don't think anybody's yeah. going back to how it was before. That's I mean that's probably yeah that's gone. Uh, yeah, that, oh that yes, that's clear. gone because yeah. you know if if you were then you would have to have gotten lots of more office space during the pandemic. Especially also if you have to do social distancing and whatnot. So nobody did that. So yeah. nobody has enough office space anymore for their number of employees that they've hired during the pandemic. Nobody has that. Uh, and, you know, it's an expensive thing. So that's gone. Uh, and, you know, in Silicon Valley, obviously, we believe in tech. So, you know, things like Slack, Zoom with technology, written culture, there's ways to collaborate. And then we can use the office in smarter ways. You know, we'll still use yeah. the office. We'll still meet in person. We'll do those things. And I think also a lot of the negative things that come with this pandemic will disappear once the pandemic is over. So once there is no social distancing and masks and so on, we can actually have that kind of hybrid. You use the office to socialize and you know meet people, do meetings, retreats, whatnot. And then you can work from home a lot. And I think a lot of people also in the last 12 months built the office space for themselves at home. So they, that's also a problem that's sort of going over, right? It's people have yeah. made sure that they have a way where they can work from home. Right, uh, an air on chair and a good light yeah. and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, a good camera. Wi-Fi. There you go. Hey, boss, we're over time. Yes. Okay. All right. Appreciate you calling me on that, boss. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, this has been Boss Talk.